0: Do invite you to take your Bibles and turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 6 uh, with us today. Now, there are a number of reasons why the Roman Empire collapsed after dominating over one-fourth of the world for over four centuries. One of the big reasons was the demise of the Roman legions, the Roman military, which had become the envy of the world for centuries. Toward the end of that its empire, Rome could not get enough of her citizens to sign up for their military. So they had to look to conquered lands for soldiers, so much so that the legions begin to fill up with barbarians from many different places, but many of them from Germania, who were fierce fighters. But eventually, they begin to outnumber Roman soldiers to the point where the army of Rome began being called the barbarous instead of the Roman legions. Eventually, they turned on Rome, as the saying goes, The rest is history. Now, the collapse of the Roman war machine was truly striking for a people whose motto was Invicta, Invicta, meaning unconquered Rome, and whose emblem on a soldier's arm was S P Q R, which became a source of pride for its citizens of the Republic and later for the entire Roman Empire. Senatius Populeschi Romanius, the Senate and the Roman people. This marking of the legion encapsulated the Roman political system where they believed that their system was the source of their freedom and their greatness. And in the era that the legion started to slip and begin losing military battles, a Roman commander by the name of Vegetius came up with a way for the army that he believed could regain its former strength and its glory. He actually wrote a training manual manual that explained in detail of how the army used to be, like in the time that we're talking about in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17 here. Vegetius called this manual the military institutes of the Romans. Now he wrote, victory in war does not depend entirely upon numbers or mere courage, only skill and discipline will ensure it. We find that the Romans owed the conquest of the world to no other cause than continual military training, exact observation of the discipline in their camps and the unwearied cultivation of the other arts of war. Upon taking their oath uh, to serve in the military, then a soldier would be marked with the sign of the legion on the left shoulder, the SPQR. The ancient world's version, really, of a tattoo and the perfection of their daily required exercises and drills helped the Romans be more disciplined, more physically fit and healthier than any other army in that era. They trained in all kinds of conditions, all kinds of weather, and their training consisted in three domains, physical fitness, weaponry, and field service. And to the Roman way of thinking, the most important of all those three was the PT, the physical training. What good was knowing how to use a weapon or how to keep your equipment in good working order or how to eat a good diet or how to dig a latrine or how to dig a trench for warfare or how to be able to communicate on the battlefield or move in unison as a unit if you tire out right away and you can't effectively use your weapons or your training or your skills. So a lot of their PT consisted of marching. Well, that doesn't sound like a lot of physical fitness training, does it? Marching? Well, ask your friends who've served in the military how vigorous marching can be. Or ask one of our uh, people in our church when they went to college who served in a marching band, okay? Especially if they went to a Division I college. Ask Pastor Nathan's wife, Nicole who was at NDSU and was in their band on the in a school that won four national titles in the time she was in, in college, Division 1A football. I mean, they're practicing for hours, many times a day, 12 hours a week. They're high leg kicks, and they're carrying these instruments. It's exhausting. It's vigorous. They train very hard. Well, Roman marching was a step below an all-out run. The first goal was to be able to march 20 miles in five hours without any problems. Next it was to march 24 miles in the same time frame, five hours, that's just a little over two miles. Two miles and 386 yards short of a marathon. And by the way, they did this with all their gear, all their weapons, all their armor, all their backpack, 17 days of food rations. This on average weighed 66 pounds. They also did this in perfect military formation and cadence, which was so impressive that it was frankly intimidating to the opposing militaries. And I know what that's like, because I coached high school wrestling for many years, and we used to go up against Ellsworth in the sectionals. They never lost in the sectionals. Every year they had for 16 straight years. They would do a hard practice before you would face them in sectionals, because they know they're going to wipe you out right away. So they drill and practice like crazy. And before everybody steps out on the mat, they're like, oh, it's over it's over. That's exactly the way it was. If we had one or two kids could win a match, we thought we accomplished something. I mean, that's the way they trained. And then the Romans, at the end of their marches, they would set up camp and they'd dig a trench for battle. After they'd just run 24 miles, they would do that. They had other forms of training, swimming and wrestling and hand-to-hand combat and mock sword and spear and shield and javelin fighting. And it was vigorous. Everything they did And many of those things, of course, not the shields and fighting and the spears and all that, but many of their other forms of training are still practiced around the world to this day. And it's also a part of our nation's armed services in our basic training. Now, when ancient armies went into battle, they would have a battle cry, strength and honor or strength and courage as they could see their opponents across the battlefield and their blood was pumping and the adrenaline was surging. And in unison, they would shout out this battle cry, reminding themselves and their opponents about what they were all about. Do you remember when Gideon went with 300 of his men to face the Midianites? They surrounded their camp at night, and then they broke their pots, which were their torches, and then they blew their trumpets, and they all shouted in Judges chapter 7, verse 20, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. That was their battle cry. Well, do you realize that our battle cry, our spiritual battle cry, is right in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, okay, it says, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. That's the battle cry. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And then we go out and face our opponent. Folks, we're in the battle of our lives because it's a spiritual battle. And the Christian life is hard to live uh, because of all the spiritual warfare that affronts it. Evangelistic efforts are often met with excuses and procrastination because of this warfare. Christian marriages and families are constantly under attack Uh, uh, Children are under attack, students are under attack, churches are under attack, pastors and church leaders are under attack, the word of God, the Bible is under attack. We even see law enforcement officers in our country under attack right now and many marriages and families and churches and ministry and outreach efforts are struggling or even falling apart because of the various demonic activity that's arrayed against it out there. And there's a lot more to spiritual warfare than a battle between angels and demons. Sometimes our own sinful flesh is the culprit or wicked influences of this world. Satan and his demonic realm are not the only ones involved in the moral failure of society. Leaders often become complicit. People even become willing and naive partners Because they're lovers of themselves. And it's true because of all of these forces allied against a Christian that living the Christian life is one of the hardest things that you will ever attempt to do in your life. And verse 11 tells us, put on the full armor of God. We've got our battle cry, put on the armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's screams. Verse 13, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you will be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, then stand firm, verse 14 says, "Then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. You know, stand means that we hold our position. It means that the devil and all of these forces that are allied against us do not gain any territory in our lives or any territory in God's church or any uh, move us off course in any way, shape, or form. You know, part of the Roman Legion's success was their ability with their shields to pull them together almost in an interlocking way to move as one unit. And often they would do this after their artillery has uh, softened up their opponent catapults that would launch big fire bombs, and various catapults that would launch spears through the air, and of course their artillery, which was archers that would launch arrows and soften them up. Then they would come with the ground forces surging forward as one unit, oftentimes chanting as they went. And a key part of their equipment was their hob-nailed boots, based sandals, basically like wearing a set of cleats or wearing a set of spikes in a sporting event so that you can have sure footing and you don't slip. They were called caligae, or Latin means callus, meaning hard, heavy-duty, thick-soled, open work boots that were good in many types of train, in many types of climate, and when facing various foot kind of ailments. You know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but in World War I, because of the nature of the battle of World War I, it was a lot of trench warfare. And so there was a lot of foot rot. You know, part of the reason there was trench warfare is there was a lot of chemical weapons used, and fumes tend to rise. And so part of the reason was uh, for the trenches. And so they had trenches dug everywhere. But obviously you had to deal with the moisture problems in the ground, and there was a lot of foot rot that went on, or what they called trench foot. And at one point or another in World War I, 40% of soldiers battled with uh, some form or variation of foot rot. That's why they were required to change their socks two times every day when they were uh, fighting in World War I. Well, the Romans' hobnailed military boots helped them move quickly in all kinds of terrain and to get into position to stand their ground against surging armies and literally even to push their enemies back. Because of their sure footing, they could move them back. Feet fitted with the readiness that comes From the gospel of peace, that's what it's referring to here. Now, this term readiness means being prepared in advance before the first enemy even shows up on the scene, being ready to go with because of the gospel of peace. Now, the gospel, of course, is the good news of Jesus Christ. First John chapter five verse one says, "Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God." Which John in his gospel, as well as the four different letters that he wrote, describes over and over again as life. He's talking about life. In 1 John 5, 12, he says, whoever has the Son has life. This is our assurance of our salvation that we have Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord of our lives. We have life. And in John 10, 10, Jesus said this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Who is it that wants to rob Christians of their abundant, full lives? It's the thief and his forces of evil. Who wants to get us to doubt our faith and discourage us in our faith to the point where we're despairing even of this life in this world? You know, in this season we find ourselves in, in all this chaos and social unrest and this political climate, who's trying to rob us of all that? It's the thief who wants to rob us of the peace that comes with Jesus Christ, with the gospel. Jesus, on the other hand, is the great uniter. Jesus is the one who heals the divides. Flip back just to chapter 2 here in the the book of Ephesians, and I'll read verses 11 through 18 for you. Here's what it says. Therefore, remember that you formerly who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves a circumcision which is done in the body by human hands, remember at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside his flesh in the, the, the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you, who are far away, and peace to those of you who are near. For through him we have access to the Father by one Spirit. Jesus is the one who, who unites people. It's Satan and his cohorts who are the ones who push the whole division concept. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we've been justified with, through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, please understand here today, in this biblical context of spiritual warfare, that a life uh, in Christ does not remove us from this world. It sustains us in it. That's important to understand. It doesn't take us out of here. It sustains us while we're in it. And Christians in the first century era of the hand-to-hand combat understood that the first person to lose their footing in the battle was going to the first one to fall. They're going to the first one who is going to lose. If you lose your footing, you're in serious trouble. Just as the Roman soldier's studded boots anchored them firmly to the ground as they faced their opponents, so too the gospel of peace anchors us firmly to our foundation, to our God, as we face the trials and tribulations and uncertainties that assail us in this fallen world. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a young German pastor and theologian when he was imprisoned in Nazi Germany for his resistance to Hitler and the Third Reich. And during the two years of his imprisonment, he ministered to fellow prisoners, even to some of the guards he ministered to. And he wrote letters upon letters to family and friends on the outside. And those letters were actually smuggled out of the prison by guards who were sympathetic to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Well, later they were published posthumously as letters and papers from prison. And what they revealed was a man living in peace, sustained by prayer, devoted to the Bible, and confident in the new life that waited, awaited him should he die. Well, after Bonhoeffer was executed by hanging, and if I remember history right, he was hung with a, a, a piece of wire before the end of the war, just weeks. I mean, it was in April, late April, and the war ended in early uh, May of 1945, and this was April 1945. Well, an English officer with the pastor, uh, imprisoned with him during these years, uh, wrote of Bonhoeffer. He said, Bonhoeffer was all humility and kindness. He always seemed to exude an atmosphere of happiness. He was joyous in the smallest events and deeply grateful for the mere fact that he was alive. He is one of the few men I have ever met whose God was real and close to him. You know, when we are right with God, we have peace in our life and we can stand firm in our faith against the attacks from the forces of evil. And by the way, do you know that these which verses in the Bible are the most highlighted right now in our nation? Which verses in the Bible do people underline the most? This is according to Amazon's Kindle. Tracking. You know what those verses that are the most highlighted right now in our nation? Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all human understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you know that word anxious there it means being pulled in two different directions? Do you think there's a reason? Right, right now in America, people are highlighting those verses in the Bible more than any other because they feel like they're being pulled. you ever feel like you're being pulled in two different directions? That's what's happening. And by the way, in the book of Philippians, let me point out to you that verse 1 of Philippians chapter 4 says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and, crown, and my crown, stand firm in the Lord. He tells them to stand firm in the Lord. And then he talks about being anxious for nothing. When you feel like you're being ripped apart, okay, you, you need to go to God in prayer and you need to cast all your cares upon him. And by the way, look at the very next verse here after six and seven in the book of Philippians chapter four. What does it say? Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. See, the text tells us exactly if we're going to stand firm in the Lord, if we're not going to be anxious about anything, it tells us what we should be thinking about. And I must say that this is the opposite of what I'm hearing a lot of uh, coming from the mouths of a lot of Christians right now uh, in this highly politically charged time that we find ourselves living in. Much of what I hear coming out of Christians' mouths is pretty negative stuff. Max Lucado writes this about this very verse, Philippians 4.8. You probably know this, but in case you don't, I'm so thrilled to give you the good news, you can pick what you ponder. You didn't select your birthplace or your birth date. You didn't choose your parents or your siblings. You don't determine the weather or the amount of salt in the ocean. There are many things in life over which you have no choice or control, but the greatest activity of life is well within your domain. You can choose what you think about. You can be the air traffic controller of your mental airport. You occupy the control tower, and you can direct the mental traffic of your, wor- of your world. Thoughts circle above, coming and going. If one of them lands, it's because you gave it permission. If it leaves, It's because you directed it to do so. You can select your thought pattern. And it turns out that our most valuable weaponry against anxiety weighs less than three pounds, and it sits right between your ears. Think about what you think about. So what did we just learn here from Philippians? We've learned to worry about nothing, to pray about everything, to thank God in all things, and to think about the right things. You know, in Isaiah 26, verse 3, it says, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast. Or the old translations, remember y'all used to say it? Those whose minds are stayed upon thee. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are stayed upon thee. Now, I must say today as well that anxious Christians are not witnessing Christians. Unless you're calling witnessing, witnessing about themselves and their anxiety and their woes, but not calling witnessing, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. But peace-filled Christians, on the other hand, can share the good news of Jesus Christ because their witness is about Jesus. Their witness isn't about themselves and how terrible they have it and all their woes and all these things. It's about Jesus. And he's the one who gives them peace. You know, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. That's how that verse begins. And it doesn't say, in your hearts, make sure you maintain all your fears or, or, or revere your circumstances or your anxious thoughts. Keep them on the throne of your life so they dominate your thinking and everything that you do. Let them be your master. No. Let Jesus be the Lord of your life. Revere Him as Lord, because He is Lord. Then it says, always be prepared. Recognize that term? That's that term readiness from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15, where it talks about our feet being fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. Because it's saying here in 1 Peter 3:15 that we should always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asked us to give the reason the hope that you have and by the way peace-filled christians they get asked a lot more times to give the reason for the hope that they have than christians who are walking around with all their anxieties and all of their fears you know who wants to know why you're so fearful and why you're so anxious no if anything they want to know how did you overcome that who's the one who helped you change and become different like you are today and again something that Christians here are better at if they're peace-filled Christians than when they're anxious-filled Christians. And then it concludes this verse by telling us that we're to give this answer with gentleness and respect. Again, peace-filled Christians are more adept at giving these gentle and respect responses than anxiety-prone believers are. You know, in Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul Goes to great lengths to explain the necessity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That everyone, he says, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He explains there how if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you confess with your mouth uh, that God raised him from the dead, you're gonna be saved. That's what the Bible says. And he explains the gospel so well in Romans chapter 10. But he comes to the conclusion: is we got to have some people to go out there and say it. We gotta have people to share this. What good is it if there's no messengers? We got the message. But, 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 but what's going to happen if there are no messengers? You know, how will people hear if no one goes and proclaims that message? You know, how's it going to work if people keep walking around in all their fears and, and anxieties and let that be on the throne of their lives instead of being peace-filled in Jesus Christ and going through this world, living in this harsh, fallen world in peace because of who we belong to? Well, the amazing thing that Paul concludes there is he quotes from Isaiah 52, verse 7. And it's a verse about soldiers bringing good tidings, their feet of soldiers bringing good news to their people, news of deliverance. And Paul quotes this about how amazing it truly is when people share good news, when they bring the good news. Here's what he said. How beautiful are the feet of them, the feet of them, who bring good news. That's the feet that are fitted with the gospel of peace. So my encouragement for you today is to stand firm in the faith with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Would you pray with me, please? God, our Father, we thank you for the peace that we have in Christ Jesus, that all of the divisions that existed before have been taken away, because of what you have done for us in your Son. And Lord, thank you that you want to be the Master and Lord of our lives, that we don't need all these other things to be controlling us. In fact, uh, you know, uh, incapacitating us is what many times all of these other fears and thoughts do in our lives. So Lord, I pray that we would live in the peace that we have in you, and we would stand firm in that peace, the peace of the gospel. And then be the messengers you've called us to be because we live out of that peace uh, and our lives are completely set upon you. I pray for this today, Jesus, in your name, amen.